This is an ABC podcast. G'day, beloved listeners. You've probably detected there's a rather mysterious feel to the theme tonight, the way Giuseppe is conducting it, and that because tonight is a program of mysteries. There are three of them that will require various Hercule Perrault's and Miss Marples to explain. One of them is the book I'm holding in my hand, which is uh, Wolves Make Roadways Safer. What could that possibly mean? Dr Jennifer Rayner, the author, will be along to uh, Miss Marple, that herself. And we're also going to introduce you to a very mysterious organisation. They'll be starring in in our second segment called AP4D. Once again, I'm afraid you can't listen to that unless you've got a top-level security clearance. But uh, Melissa... Conley Tyler and uh, George Carter will decode for those of you who pass that test. But the first mystery is a a word, a term, Juneteenth. And I want our beloved Bruce Shapiro to explain what it means. Juneteenth, Bruce. Hello, sir. Juneteenth was yesterday the, the first federal celebration of the Juneteenth holiday. Juneteenth is the 19th of June, uh, a holiday long celebrated in African-American communities, black communities in the United States, um, but never until now uh, an official national day of celebration. It goes back to June 19th, 1865, a full year after President Abraham Lincoln had emancipated enslaved people through the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, That was the day that word of emancipation reached Galveston, Texas, where enslaved people had not known they were free for a full 12 months. Um, And it became a sort of underground holiday, um, a way of marking not only the end of slavery officially, um, but the long road to get there, the long road out of it. Think about the fact that the government of Texas in 1865 um, did not bother to see fit to tell folks in Galveston Uh, then as now, a considerable community about this slight change in the American constitution, in the American, in in American law and in the lives of, of enslaved people. Um, the suppression of Juneteenth, uh, the suppression or, or, or rather the, the continuation of slavery by other means through the Jim Crow years um, had its counterpart in the quiet maintenance in the oral tradition of black communities of Juneteenth. And um, in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, one of the uh, more enduring changes was the Biden administration's decision to put Juneteenth on the national calendar as an official uh, official national holiday. Banks closed, postal service closed. It happened to coincide this year with Father's Day. Everybody went to the beach. It was kind of absorbed into our national holiday um, list with remarkable lack of controversy. I was going to ask you about the no blowback from the Trumpians. Uh, they seem to ignore it. Um, and this is, you know, if you want to look for the the complicated and contradictory nature of American life right now. Think back a generation uh, to when Martin Luther King's birthday in January was made a national holiday and the fierce resistance to that from Republicans and conservatives at the time. Uh, This one, the, the 
Trumpites have had other things on their minds, <laughs> uh, like the January 6th hearings, and there was simply no discernible resistance to this. It was embraced, greeted, and let's move on, which is how national holidays usually happen. Um, but it still is a remarkable indicator of some kind of social consensus, even while these huge fractures and divides seem to grow ever bigger. Talking to Bruce Shapiro, and now I want to mention uh, the R word, recession. Are you having one? Oi. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I am no economist, uh, and the, the people who know much more about this than I am say a recession is likely. What is quite evident, though, is that inflation is at a pace in the United States we have not seen since the 1970s. Um, and in particular, I think what is alarming ordinary consumers and economists alike is the price of gasoline, which has essentially doubled in the last six months. Um, I filled up my car the other day and it just it burned a hole in my wallet uh, that even I was not expecting. Um, I, I am shocked, shocked that you don't drive a Tesla. <laughs> uh, um, uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but, but look, it's a real thing. What happens in this country when gasoline doubles because we are so car dependent in the economy? Uh, we're also beginning to see the impact already. People canceling summer plans, uh, road trips, the likelihood that airplanes will, which had just been reco recovering from the pandemic, will now have to raise fares um, to maintain profit levels. Um, this could have very wide impact. And so you've got the Biden administration frantically kind of arguing within itself about what to do. Now, Biden, of course, will get the blame, but what can he do? Well, there are two proposals on the table at the moment. Uh, one is for what is being called a national uh, gasoline tax holiday, a, a period in which the federal government will take off its 18 cents a gallon tax on gasoline. Um, and, you know, that's that's a real thing, though, when the average national price of gas is over $5 a gallon, 18 cents isn't the biggest thing. Um, it would require an act of Congress to do that, uh, to give that kind of consumer relief. And it's not clear whether the current fractious divided Congress has an appetite to engage in this. So another side of the argument within the administration um, is for the federal government to issue all Americans gasoline rebate cards, um, which would be a kind of cash relief to offset these prices. And in the meantime, Biden is uh, jawboning with the refineries and oil companies, perhaps to increase the supply, lower the prices. Biden has already you know, a couple months ago released oil from the National Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, you know, this is this is cause for big concern. When inflation is at this level, you you can go back to Gerald Ford, uh, who became a one-term president in, in in part on the the uh, the consequences of of out of control inflation. Um, he uh, had a campaign back then. I remember the buttons, big buttons that Jerry Ford promoted that said W I N Whip Inflation Now. Which <laughs> someone well, which someone pointed out, if you turn the button upside down, it was N I M. No instant miracles, and I think, I think that's the territory that that Joe Biden is in right now. If Juneteenth is a very significant day in U.S. history, so was January the sixth. What's the latest from the hearings? Well, it has been a, a remarkable week, and again. I think I've said to you that I, I didn't expect to learn a whole lot out of these hearings, and I am learning a lot. I think everybody who's watching them is learning a lot. Um, last week, we uh, saw just, we heard just how many times the president and his inner circle were told uh, invalidating the votes, this plan you have for alternate electors is illegal, it's unconstitutional, told over and over and over again. Today, 
This afternoon, we're going to be getting another hearing, this one drilling down into what is probably the most potentially criminally liable area of this whole enterprise, the effort to invalidate votes at the state level, promote alternative slates of electors, or as President Trump told uh the Georgia Secretary of State, find me 11,000 votes. That attempt to bully and intimidate and threaten state state voting officials in Arizona, in Georgia, in Michigan, to overturning the outcome of the election. Um, this is an area where, again, the president was repeatedly told it was illegal. What I think we will hear today is the sense of threat and intimidation that election officials felt. And this is a, a, a dark part of the story. Well, having looked at the last election, let's now look at the next, 2024. I'm fascinated by who might be the contenders. You know, Biden is polling badly, says he's going to run again, but I don't think a lot of people are encouraging. Uh, Kamala Harris hasn't lived up to expectations. What's likely to happen on the Democrat side before we look at the Republicans? Well, you know, it's it's it is still very early. Certainly, from the last election, Pete Buttigieg um, is positioning himself to challenge Kamala Harris. If uh, should Joe Biden not run again, uh, my own Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut here, who has taken such a high-profile role both on Ukraine and on uh, gun violence. Um, it was a, the leader of the bipartisan negotiations uh, on on gun regulation. Um, he is often mentioned as a young, fresh voice. Um, oh, could Bernie run again? He could, though. Like Biden, he is on the the far side generationally of this. Um, you know, does Hillary a, does Hillary still entertain fantasies? Um. If so, she hasn't said it. I think Hillary does know that, and the people around her, I think know that the generational torch has passed. And I, I, I think there will be instead uh, a battle between the kind of Clinton-esque or pragmatic centrists in the Democratic Party um, and which might be Kamala Harris, for example, or Pete Buttigieg, and progressives who might be Sherrod Brown from Ohio, progressive populists, um, or Chris Murphy, who's more of a sort of Adlai Stevenson, egghead liberal. Um, you know, th there are divides within the Democratic Party, but no one right now has the kind of fundraising traction or grassroots traction that places them ahead of Kamala Harris should Joe Biden decide not to run. And, of course, uh, Trump is still talking up uh, another run, God forbid. Uh, you know, he has a lot of reasons to run, like needing to make money <laughs> out of it, continuing the grift. Um, but I think it's at best 50-50 whether he runs. The name most often mentioned now on the Republican side as his likely rival uh, is Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, who who is trying to seize some of the momentum of the Trump right around areas like vaccine mandates and so on, while separating himself a little bit. Um, there again, I think there's an awful lot of time, and it's not clear whether anyone has anything like the fundraising or organizational machine. And in the meantime, the Republican Party is just, unlike the Democrats, is busting apart at the seams. Um, you have state Republican committees, uh, for example, in Texas, the, the state Republican Party this weekend passed a resolution condemning their own incumbent <laughs> conservative Republican Senator John Corrin for daring to negotiate with Chris Murphy on guns. I mean, it, it's a wild scene in the Republican Party. I'm going to clutch at that straw in thanking you, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro, his day job is exec director of the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia. And as I told you, tonight is a night where we explain mysteries and the next mystery after a little bit of music, is AP4D.
As I warned you at the beginning of the program, if you don't have a, uh, a high-level security clearance, you must not listen to this segment. Let me begin by decoding AP4D. It stands for Asia-Pacific Development, Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. They are the four Ds. And uh, the AF4D has released some papers uh, from their think tank that set out a blueprint for Australia to reset its relationship with the Pacific. Given we had an interesting chat here on LNL last week about trade versus aid in the Pacific, with some practical suggestions about what could be done in that realm, we're interested to hear about the other Ds. The report by think tank AP4D has just been launched today. Melissa Cordy-Taylor, Conley-Taylor, is program head at this fine institution and we're also delighted to be joined by Dr George Carter, a research fellow in geopolitics and regionalism at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. And uh, in George's Samoan village, he holds the chiefly title of Sala. Melissa, to you first. Can you explain very briefly what AP4D does and give us a, a sense of where the report is coming from? Well, I'm delighted to hear that we're a bit of a mystery. We are certainly very new. We're under a year old. And we were set up, I think, with a, a simple but powerful insight that in a difficult, contested world, you need all the elements of statecraft working together. Uh, so we've um, working across the sectors. We're hosted at the Australian Council for International Development. We receive funding from Defence, from the Australian Civil Military Centre, and now from DFAT. Um, and over this last year, we've been doing a project, get, bringing together people from across the three sectors to look at two key relationships for Australia. Firstly, six months looking at Australia's relationships in Southeast Asia. And then for the last six months, we've been looking at Australia's relationships with the Pacific. We've worked with 140 experts across the region and in Australia. And today we launched the results. Let's start with climate because that's dominated the interactions mm. our new government has had in the Pacific and indeed the, uh, the previous government. I gather you, well, the report supports the shift in narrative away from security to focus on climate. Mm. Um, it was an interesting process because the papers were written before the election and, of course, post-election, there's, there's a different mood. Uh, I think, as you say, climate's a, a key issue. We've been hearing from the region for so many years that this is a key existential threat and one which Australia is not being ambitious enough on. And I think that the sort of well, watching the election result itself with, you know, um, strong results for the Greens, for, for climate action, community independence, um, a new government with, with stronger, um, you know, climate action aims, all of that has made a difference and the messaging has been very strong. Uh, yeah. Let's now welcome George to the conversation. Good on you, George. I understand you contributed to the climate change dialogues for these reports. Was it a problem, in your view, that Australia was talking so much about security in the Pacific that that tended to get the emphasis? Thank you very much, Philip, and also Alyssa for the kind invitation to join in our Telenor discussion tonight. Um, you know, for the last uh, nine years, especially under the last um, coalition government, the discussion or the dialogue between Pacific Island countries as region, but also as individual uh, individual states, has been difficult uh, with Australia, especially with the fact that uh, um, targets around mitigation weren't forthcoming uh, in these discussions. And so it was an issue that was sort of uh, put on the side of the table. And at times uh, we have seen and um, sort of read and, and analysis throughout the last nine years, a lot of these regional discussions were um, uh, watered down in terms of uh, having ambitious regional actions 
every time that Australia was part of these discussions. I know you argue that uh, the Pacific has effectively led on the issue for, well, for decades, while Australia has been ominously silent. George, what to you are the most important recommendations on climate change in the report? Absolutely. Um, with the new Labour government and their announcements, I think first and foremost is the area around international leadership and diplomacy. You know, Australia now opening up, the, having this dialogue around mitigation as well as adaptation. It can lead uh, in terms of what's already asking that it can lead a conference of the parties, UNFCC, uh, with the Pacific. This we can see in terms of the UK, when it led uh, as a president of uh, the Conference of the Parties, you saw systems change, you saw signals to the market change, and uh, a lot of that came through in, in terms of UK, in terms of diplomacy. The second aspect, of course, is the change in energy policy, where you can see Australia not only become a leader in renewable energy, but also green technology, simple green technology, and that be shared across the Pacific region. Uh, as well as within Australia, are exciting times. I understand the Labor government has said it's keen to host a, a COP, a conference of the parties generally known as a UN climate change conference in Australia with Pacific countries as partners. Absolutely. And this is, you know, whether it happens in the next two years or down the line, uh, you know, because of the rules of UNFCC, this may not happen. Uh, it's important that Australia becomes that international leader that works with the Pacific. But it should not stop just there. The advocacy should also, the Pacific needs a country like Australia that can work inside the G7 and the G20 that pushes for ambitious actions. And Australia has that. It can push China. It can push India. It can continue to push United States down that pathway. And what it has done in the last uh, two weeks, when it was involved in sort of a sort of similar quad, it was able to push for a paragraph that specifically addressed the issues of the Pacific. If Australia uh, takes this role as an international leader, it can be that uh, uh, role, uh, sort of that voice inside G20 and G7. We need to take in consideration the views of the Pacific. What are we as um, big economies going to do about it? And I think that's something to look forward to. Melissa, before we move on to other areas, to some of the other Ds, what are some of the key climate recommendations for Australia to take? Mm. Well, look, one that is still in the balance at the moment is the issue of Australia rejoining the Green Climate Fund. Uh, it's something that the new government hasn't yet decided on, I understand. And uh, it's worth you know, thinking through what that could potentially do. We heard uh, a lot of voices from the Pacific saying that there's been difficulties um, accessing uh, the, 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 the climate funds through the Green Climate Fund um, and that having Australia back as part of the Green Climate Fund would be really useful in helping. And I note that uh, there's a First Nations foreign policy mm. approach now being incorporated. That could be useful. Very much so. And that came through in the consultations again, that that's just so valued, the opportunity to connect with Indigenous Australians. Um, now, uh, one of the election commitments for the new government was to um, implement a First Nations foreign policy and a new office of First Nations foreign policy is being established. And, you know, my hope would be that looking at the Pacific in particular would be one of their early priorities. Back to you, George. Another area that AP4D reports on is the digital sphere. Now, I don't think you were involved in that part, but uh, could you give us a sense of the problem as it stands? I mean, you look at the geography of the region, isolated, but also it's a body of um, isolated islands as well as um, uh, in terms of the body of all of the Pacific Ocean. And so uh, you need... It's not just about uh, underwater sea cables to connect um, technology, these islands together. It's also important that you have a variety of alternatives. As we saw in uh, as a volcano eruption in Tonga, you need satellite, uh, a backup. Uh, because uh, the geography tells us uh, vastly uh, isolated by ocean, rugged highlands, but also that disaster uh, prone. Uh, and so technology, when we're talking about uh, 
you know, uh, action and policies around technology, we should always take into account um, uh, this connectivity. The second aspect that is also needs to be simple. Uh, small economies, as well, uh, meaning uh, small populations, uh, not having access to, um, uh, to bigger markets. And so it has to be a very simple technology that... Uh, that can also cut the divide. And what we sort of see and that we're finding out in a lot of our research is that there's a suspicion by communities in new technology that's coming through or new renewable. So there's also that work in terms of translating and making sure that people are comfortable with uh, uh, this new age and era of uh, digital transformations that we're moving into. Melissa, I guess Australia could invest in satellite for the region. Look, certainly there's a there's a huge role for Australia in um, assisting on the infrastructure. It's going to look different in different places. Um, in some countries, it's going to be about, you know, solar charging, electrification. Um, it, it will depend. Whereas in others, that you know, Fiji, for example, is really pitching itself as a as a regional digital hub. Um, However we're involved, I think I think we want to keep in mind two parts of digital. Um, one is the um, amazing transformation that it enables. Um, if you think of Pacific uh, societies as often, you know, struggling with connectivity with the rest of the world, you know, digital can be transformative in the way that uh, you can um, take your business online, but also that you can take stories and culture and content online, um, that you can record your society at a time of change. So there's, there's enormous potential, but there's also a lot of downsides um, and having the resilience to cope with things like cyber attacks and incidents and misinformation. Are, are cyber attacks a, a possibility or a consideration? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm afraid so. And, and look, and that's the point. They're, they're, nowhere is immune from this. All of the same cyber issues that every country is dealing with, the Pacific is also dealing with. Uh, but often, you know, is there the the, the critical mass of trained people, are there this, is there support, are there the resources to deal with it? And I think Australia can be a very important partner. There's also a role with the digital technology recording culture, isn't there, Melissa? Mm. Yeah, and and it's interesting to watch that. Um, as I said, it's a time of change and, you know, there, there are some Pacific communities who feel really under threat at the moment and, and that sense of being able to record and, and have that preservation um, of, of culture and society, um, I, I think that's a fascinating one. Speaking of uh, culture, George, uh, we tend to, to think security is about military bases and the like, but you say it's as much about culture. Yes, um, and in the work that I'm looking at in terms of climate security, when we're trying to unpack what uh, not only societies but countries in the Pacific are trying to define what it is, that when they're looking at security, it's also about culture. They're saying that the uh, impact of climate change will lead to pressures on the economy that may lead to migration or displacement. And culture, the loss of culture is fundamental to this. And so it's vitally important that measures such as policies like what Tuvalu is doing in terms of documenting that culture uh, is part of this. George, I think our listeners would love to know more a little of your own cultural background because it's a, a case in point of just how complex the Pacific is. Talk, tell me about your father's side. Sure. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm very proud that the fact that on my father's side, I'm not only Samoan, but Kiribati, Tuvalu, and, and British. Uh, and so, uh, start from Tuvalu, where um, a sailor from uh, the UK, uh, who actually lived in um, uh, here in Sydney, was able to have schooner, the trading between uh, Ocean Island and Australia, but also intermarried uh, uh, a lady in Tuvalu, had two sons, one of those sons then came to school here in Sydney, but actually uh, ended up in Tarawa and married a local, local uh, uh, Tarawa lady. Their family and children then moved to Samoa and intermarried into Samoa. But also, you know, this is the story that many uh, people have, that shared history, that, that bond that, uh, uh, you know, from the time of uh, early explorers, colonization to now. And, of course, on your mother's side, her family was Chinese, part of that uh, indentured labour 
way That's that right. came to Samoa in the 1900s. So your mum is fourth generation Chinese. Heavens above, you are a global family. Well, I think not just global, but it's an example of you hear these stories of Pacific families, you know. Uh, it's the same as the current migration into Australia and New Zealand of uh, intermarried with uh, the Greek and Croatian Australians. Huh? This is the uh, um, continuing story of Pacific peoples and their resilience and true migration. And uh, that's also something that uh, is also covered within the report uh, in terms of acknowledging that uh, phenomenon, but it's an asset to both Australia and the region. Melissa, as we run out of time, I'd like you to tell me the economic ref, uh, recommendations coming out of the report. Absolutely. Well, look, the focus there is very much being on a generational partner. Um, there's, I think there's a danger at the moment that, you know, a lot of the focus on the region has been reactive. Um, it can be crisis-driven. Um, looking instead at how can we make a essentially a life cycle difference for a child that's born in the Pacific today? You know, what are we doing that's going to help put uh, the trajectory of uh, in a positive way for them? So, I mean, you'd expect that there's a lot there on education, there's a lot there on health, there's a lot there on trade. Um, I think labour mobility and migration is a very strong focus and we'll see that over the next next few years. Um, and uh, How important, forgive me, but how important do you see tourism or is that a two-edged sword? Look, tourism has traditionally been very strong for the region, but, um, you know, COVID showed how fragile that can be, of course. Uh, and, and I think there's a de definitely a desire to, you know, have diversified economies that aren't dependent just on, on tourism. Uh, I, I think the other main thing that came out of the Economies and Societies group was around infrastructure, which again has been an area of, you know, geopolitical competition. You know, if Chinese are building big things, everyone else wants to build big things too. And um, our focus was very much on where the infrastructure spend will make the most difference in people's lives in service delivery. So, um, the recommendation is we should be going into maintenance of existing things, small-scale, climate adaptation, lots of use of local materials and social infrastructure. I promised you we'd decode AP4D, beloved <laughs> listeners, and we have. We've been hearing about the Asia-Pacific development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, the four Ds. Thank you, George Carter, Research Fellow in Geopolitics and Regionalism at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. And thank you, Melissa Conley-Tyler, Program Head at that mysterious think tank. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night to hear Tess Newton-Kane's monthly roundup of what's making news in the Pacific. And now, the final mystery for the night. What can the title, Wolves Make Roadways Safer, possibly, possibly mean? Amidst the recent political shenanigans, you may have missed some really glad tidings about the Golden Bandicoot. Let me remind you that only last month this uh, furry friend has been returned to the Streslecki Desert in the far western New South Wales after, note this, a 100-year absence. Thanks to a partnership between scientists from the University of New South Wales and New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife. And according to those bandicoot experts, these critters are ecosystem engineers. Well, the same can certainly be said of the grey wolf in North America, specifically in the Midwest of the US, where a rewilding experiment has helped reverse degradation of the country's first national park, the fabled Yellowstone. Now, rewilding wolves has also been going on in Scotland. Well, generally, they're part of uh, wealthy corporates buying up land to create uh, 
wildlife flora and fauna sanctuaries, the US experiment is completely different and has created constant standoffs between state and federal legislators while scientists are trying to get their work done examining fragile ecosystems. But back to the big bad wolf and someone who knows more than most about its history and its demise and its reintroduction into the wild, we welcome to our little wireless program Dr Jennifer Reiner. Hi there, Jennifer. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me. Jennifer is Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics and College of the Environment at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And uh, Jennifer, how did your love affair with the grey wolf begin? Well, your introduction was was a great one for, for why I became interested in wolves, actually. So I was living in Wisconsin in 2012 uh, during one of these periods where uh, management of wolves was being transferred from the federal government to states. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about wolves going on at the time. And it occurred to me that, you know, we, we've heard a lot about the ecology of wolves over the last several decades, but not as much about the economics. And so as an economist, I thought I could weigh in on, on how we can think about the economic impacts of wolves. So you began your PhD as an economist to look at the trade-offs to coexistence. That's right. Now, can you give uh, some history on the wolf in the US? Do we know how many there were prior to colonization? Well, prior to colonization, there were probably about 2 million wolves across North America. As many as that. And Mm -hmm. the age of extermination? So starting in around the 1800s, European colonists had a lot of conflict with wolves, uh, mainly over livestock predation. So we had very large decreases in native prey populations at the time, species like deer and beavers. And so wolves started to prey on livestock more and more. And so we had this very long period of wolf eradication in the United States, starting in about the early 1800s through the mid 1900s. And there were very concerted efforts to eliminate every last wolf from the country. And by 1960, there were no wolves left, except for a very small remnant population in Isle Royale National Park, which is in Michigan, and a very small population in northeastern Minnesota. So the process was exonerated by a huge bounty on pelts, I guess? Yes, there were several programs. There were state bounty programs where you would be paid for each pelt that you turned in. Um, There was also some commercial wolf hunting going on where because lots of fur-bearing species, you know, animals that that people were selling pelts for, uh, because lots of these species were declining at the same time, wolf pelts became more valuable. And so people were also selling them commercially. And thirdly, the federal government actually created a bureau with the goal of eliminating large predator populations from federal lands. And so all these groups combined put really uh, incredible pressure on wolf populations. I was surprised to learn there are about 30 subspecies of the grey wolf native to Canada. Yes, there's many subspecies of the grey wolf across the world. Um, Wolves were once the most widely distributed mammal in the world, living across most of the northern hemisphere. And so there's just been a lot of uh, opportunities for, for wolves to differentiate over time. And, of course, it wouldn't help that they've always had such a bad press, you know, deemed a danger to humans. Yes, this is one of the main reasons uh, why there has been, I think, a lot of controversy about allowing wolves to come back among uh, certain populations. There's a fear that of the big bad wolf. You know, if we have these large predators on the landscape, maybe there's some threat to people. Um, But in reality, in North America, there are almost no attacks by wolves on humans uh, since this period in the 1900s where wolves started to come back. You described their personality as shy, elusive, and how we hear the wolf before we see it. Yes, there's been uh, accounts even from the colonial period where people would report that you hear the wolves, but you never see them. Uh, They're very elusive animals. They're very good at avoiding people. Um, and still today, we, we see similar behaviours by wolves. So the age of extermination was eventually followed by the age of conservation. And interestingly, the Endangered Species Act came into law under President Nixon. Talk us through that period of attempted conservation, please, Jennifer. As I mentioned, by 1960, there were no wolves left in the United States, very few wolves, uh, rather. 
And uh, we had this big environmental movement in the United States in the 60s and 70s with this massive federal legislation called the Endangered Species Act. This was passed in the 70s, um, and it included wolves as one of the very first species to gain federal protection as an endangered species. And what this protection essentially does is take control from states uh, for wolf management, and the federal government now does it. It also makes it illegal to kill wolves under most circumstances. That Endangered Species Act cast a wide net metaphorically. We had the Houston toad, the whooping crane, and the Florida panther. I didn't know there were panthers in Florida. Yes, there's a lot of species listed under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, Currently, there's about 1,600 species that are listed. Now, tell us about the role of the ever-powerful states in all this, please, uh, Jennifer. We're a federation, but our states aren't quite as powerful as America's. Yes, states have a lot of power uh, over a lot of different dimensions of of politics and legislation in the United States. Um, But related to wildlife, they have the primary responsibility for managing wildlife populations. So this includes... um, tracking wildlife populations to see how healthy they are, setting policies around recreational hunting, uh, implementing rehabilitation programs and the like. And so normally states are responsible for managing the wildlife in their jurisdiction. The exception is when a species is listed as endangered or threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And in those cases, the federal government retains control for what happens with management of those particular species. A while ago, we did a story on the blowback from uh, ranchers and farm lobbyists. That is that uh, still around, alive and kicking? Uh, yes, it's still alive and kicking. Um, the, the two main groups that are in general opposed to wolf expansion in the United States are usually livestock ranchers, uh, as well as big game hunters, mainly deer hunters. And both of these groups have several reasons for why they they don't want wolves to expand. But one big one is livestock predation and the cost that this uh, creates for, for livestock ranchers. Has the wolf been taken off the endangered list here and there? Well, wolves have been on this pendulum of endangered or not endangered for uh, about 10 years now. So starting in the mid-2000s, we had efforts to delist wolves, which means we now call wolves not endangered, and states now regain the control to manage wolves as they see fit. But there's been many different court cases, lots of different legislation that has been putting wolves on and off this list for a long time now. So right now, wolves are listed as endangered everywhere in the lower 48 states or the mainland United States with the exception of this northern Rocky Mountain population, which is centered around Yellowstone National Park. We've done any number of stories on America's uh, passion for firearms, but I hadn't realised that hunting is a $27 billion a year industry, if it can be called that, or one hardly likes to call it a sport. And most of that comes from deer hunting, does it not? That's right. Deer hunting is a really huge economic industry in the United States. And wolves eat deer, elk, wild turkey, boars, and the hunters like to shoot them for sport. That's right. And this, I think, is one of the other main reasons uh, for the second group who are largely opposed to wolf expansion, which is big game hunters. They're partially worried that as wolves kill some of these species, it makes uh, hunting opportunities more difficult and maybe reduces the economic benefits that that hunting can provide to these states. Now, the danger to livestock from uh, wolves has been considerably exaggerated. What about attacks on humans or pets? Attacks on humans are exceedingly rare. I'm only aware of two cases where someone has been killed by wolves since this uh, recovery period in the mid-1900s. Wolves do kill pets, though, so... Is, this is also not very common, but it certainly does happen and it's something that we shouldn't ignore. Well, we're talking wolves with uh, Dr Jennifer Rayner from Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Jennifer is an economist and scientist and has brought both disciplines together in her study of the grey wolf. We'll get to economics later, Jennifer, but uh, can you tell me what happened in 1995 in Yellowstone, which had major repercussions for the fate of our friend. Yes, in 1995, the federal government 
it reintroduced some wolves into Yellowstone National Park in 1995 and 1996. Uh, these populations were protected under this Endangered Species Act, and they were allowed to grow and expand. That population now spans five states around the park, and there are currently uh, about 2,000 wolves in this region. Yeah, so when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone, we started to see some big ecological changes. We saw plant life coming back, for example. And so what we found out is that wolves can reduce prey populations like deer and elk, and they can also change the behavior of these species where they become more wary of predation. Maybe this changes how they're moving around on the landscape, what they're eating, where they're eating, how long they're hanging around, and things like that. And so this uh, changes to wolf prey animals can trickle down the, the food web into plants. And so we saw some regeneration of plant life in Yellowstone. And this plant life in turn supports other species like songbirds or bears that eat the berries that come off of plants. And so there was this large literature that started coming out on researching the ecological impacts of wolves in Yellowstone. How would you rate the Yellowstone uh, rewilding experiment? What have we learned? And is it, is it contested amongst uh, other environmental scientists? Yes, the Yellowstone experiment and this idea of a so-called trophic cascade, the domino effect of wolves all the way down the food web, had a lot of really big, important discoveries, but it also has been very controversial in the scientific community. And I would say it's a little bit unsettled whether all these effects came from wolves, whether it might have happened because beavers also came back around the same time, or something else was going on. Now... Let's put your econ economist hat on. There's an economic upside to restoring the wolf population, and I should name the provocatively titled work you and colleagues at, uh, at Wisconsin have published. Believe it or not, wolves make roadways safer. Jennifer, how so? Well, when wolves were eliminated from the continental United States, deer populations got really big. In the absence of predators as well as really aggressive action to try to help deer populations increase, um, we now see overabundant deer in many places. So with this overabundant deer, we see lots of different kinds of ecological damage, which we've already talked about, but we also see economic damage. For example, deer will eat agriculture, timber, or landscaping at houses. They help to spread Lyme disease, um, but they also create really significant costs through vehicle collisions with deer on roadways. I can't begin to tell you how often I've collided with kangaroos in Australia on my very long commutes, but uh, I didn't realise that between one and two million vehicle collisions with deers annually in the US. Yes, the, the parallel between kangaroos in Australia and deer in the United States is really a good one. So one to two million vehicle collisions with deer occur every year. And this injures maybe 29,000 people and kills another 200 every year. And all told, the economic losses from these collisions is about $10 billion every year. So wolves that prowl near roadways either eat deer or drive them away. That's right. So we looked at wolf entry into different Wisconsin counties over a 22-year period. And we found that when wolves come back, vehicle collisions with deer drop by about one quarter. And we find that about, of that whole effect, about one quarter is a reduction in deer populations and about three quarters is from some kind of behavioral change in deer. For example, changing the spatial distribution of deer around roadside edges. Isn't it good to have a form of natural culling as provided by the wolf? Yes, this is a great example of a biological control of economic damage. So it's turned out that even though hunting is incredibly popular in the states that have wolves, incredibly economically important, it hasn't been enough to control deer populations or the damages that deer cause. And so it's pretty interesting that wolves are able to control deer populations in a way that hunters have not been able to do. And we think that this is partially because of the big behavioral changes. And so this is creating these large effects on roadway collisions in a way that hunters cannot replicate. So hunters are only out a few days a year. Many, many hunters go out on Thanksgiving weekend, for example. And so there's just not enough pressure on deer populations by human hunters to create this same effect that we see from wolves. 
Tell me about the landscape of fear in this story. Yeah, so this idea of the landscape of fear is that when a predator is reintroduced to a landscape, their prey species will change their behavior in some way. So they might be, uh, as I said earlier, uh, spending less time eating in one place and more time looking around, trying to be aware of their surroundings. And so in our case, we don't know if this would be specifically a landscape of fear, um, but what our results are consistent with is deer changing their spatial distribution in some way, moving away from roads as wolves are prowling down and, and killing animals. And so we think this movement away from roads is kind of consistent with this broader idea of behavioral changes in prey when the predator is reintroduced. So summing up, Jennifer, what's the takeaway from your years of research into wolf survival in this age of climate change and human contact? Can we be confident that this magnificent beast will will continue to roam? Well, I think that wolves are not at risk of going extinct globally. There's many wolves in many different places. And so I don't think we have to be too concerned that wolves will disappear completely. However, what we're finding is that wolves are creating benefits for ecosystems and that these changes in ecosystems have measurable impacts on human lives, human property, and that these changes can generate really significant economic benefits for people. And so I think when we're thinking about management, we need to think about these dollars and cents, the, the benefits that wolves are creating, and comparing them to the costs that wolves are, are creating for other groups of people. So you alluded to earlier that uh, what I'm doing as an economist is thinking about trade-offs. So it's certainly true that wolves create costs for some people, but it's also true that we find in our paper they create benefits for many others. And so we hope uh, that by doing the research that we're doing, we can help try to inform uh, these decisions about the, the big economic trade-offs of wolves. The voice of Dr. Jennifer Rayner from Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And if you want to read up on the role of the wolf in reducing road accidents, you can check out Jennifer's paper, Wolves Make Roadways Safer. And there's a link on LNL's website. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. And that, uh, beloved listeners, is your blooming lot on our next as the uh, world meets to discuss outlawing nuclear weapons. Could our nuclear subs amount to proliferation by stealth? And the nonsensical case for making our films and television shows more Australian. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.